Welcome to the Higher Potential Living Podcast, where we discuss improving quality of life by exploring mind, body, and spirit through a mindful lens. Here's your host, Jason Marichello. Hello, and thanks for tuning in once again on this episode of Higher Potential Living. I'm joined by Cassandra. Cassandra originally started her journey in grief and bereavement and then kind of found a bit of a gap between the lines of pre-death and post-death. This led her to kind of explore the world of death midwifery and eventually led her down a pathway that involved a lot of workshops, training, courses, but also brought up a lot of insights for her. In this episode, she explains a little bit about her journey through this process and some of the lessons that she learned along the way, as well as share with us some useful tools and resources we can use if we or a loved one is transitioning through death. Hope you get a lot out of this episode. I know I did. Enjoy. Hello and welcome everyone to another episode of Higher Potential Living. I'm your host, Jason Marichello, and joining me today is Cassandra Yonder. Now, Cassandra, I found you uh, through this whole search online of trying to find someone who would be a good fit for uh, maybe talking about some of the death doula work that's happening in the world. And then when we actually connected, we're, we're going to get into it on this episode, but uh, death doulaing. Uh, is kind of not exactly where your field is at, but I was just fascinated in the history that you kind of played a part in leading up to, I guess, if we wanted to call death doula movement or the profession of it. So I'm really excited to have you on because I know that you changed or at least planted some seeds into some thought processes for me. And maybe we could do that with some of the listeners today. So thanks for joining me today. I'm happy to be here. Thank you. I guess a good starting point is uh, the simple question of, you know, even talking about this idea of community death care that, you know, you've kind of found some passion in in the past. Like what sparks what sparks an interest in something like that for someone? Mm, I think for most people, it's it's their own life experience. It's going through something and and realizing that the way it happens maybe carries more meaning and potential than they thought that it could. Mm. Um, like for example, when we look at childbirth, I think, um, you know, people hear about these stories of, of birth midwifery or home birth. And then when they experience it, they realize that even though it's kind of subtle in the difference that it, that it's actually quite profound. And then having gone through that, I think they, they want to share that experience. They want to let the world know that there's, um, you know, a deeper, possibly better way of doing things, which I think is the focus of your podcast as I understand it. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, you, you kind of hit the nail on the head there for me. The reason why I found such an interest in the idea of death dueling is when we did in-house hospice care for my grandmother a couple of years mm -hmm. back, I remember there just being such a gap in the skill set and the knowledge that my family had to navigate mm. that time. We were mm. kind of just floundering around, um, often feeling exhausted. I know for my mother in particular, it was it was very difficult, just kind of feeling she had to take on all the roles, but not knowing how to, or you know, not even knowing how to balance the caregiver with the self care and all this. And I remember just being very impressed with some of the nurses that came in that asked some of the good questions or at least planted the seed for us to have some of the good conversations 
about yeah. what's going to happen, you know, in the transition between that pre and post death phase that you and I were kind of touching on just before we kind of hit record on this. So mm-hmm. that's a big, that's a big piece of this is like, there is a large gap and death is something that is it's the only constant is the only certain thing that we are going to experience in our life at some point in time. And yet, we're all kind of afraid to talk about it. Mm-hmm. To me, the word I would use for what you're describing is alienation. Mm-hmm. I think that um, that we have experienced a cultural alienation from death. And an analogy that often comes to mind when I when I think of that alienation is that it in some ways parallels our alienation from um, food production. Mm. So for example, um, we're used to going to a store and buying some packaged stuff that we don't really know how it got there or what's inside. And then at certain moments, we really come to realize our alienation. Like I think that happens sometimes with meat in particular, that people are looking at this package of ground up flesh and thinking, I don't think I support the things that happen for this to get here in front of me, but I don't even know how to reconnect with that. Um, And I think the way that we reconnect with that is by slowly um, taking back the means of production of our own food. And so in a really kind of practical um, way that can look like having a garden in our own backyard. Mm -hmm. And when it comes to death caring, I think that we um, find ourselves like your family is in a situation where it's like, wow, like I didn't even know that there was a skill set for this situation. I didn't even know that this was a situation I was going to need skills for. Mm -hmm. And again, I think that's the result of the um, industrial revolution on death care. It's the result of death. Um, I like to think of it as that death is primarily a social event. Mm. Um, It's primarily a cultural event within families and within society. And yet I think with everything that's kind of happened the same way that happened with with food, um, that we've become alienated from it because of the Um, the way that it, because of the industrial revolution where um, pre-death got taken over by medicalization and post-death got taken over by the funeral industry. And, you know, we as a society accepted those things and wanted those things and let it happen. And then it's only now that we show up to a deathbed and think, oh my goodness, I have I have no skills to be here. And so you're mentioning that there were people in those situations that did have some of those skills that your, mm-hmm. your family didn't have and that, that they helped you to reclaim them. And that's where like the role of a death doula or the role of anybody sort of working in w- what we might call this alternative death caring field, or, you know, we can get into all of that. Um, that's where I, I really see the value in that work and how that's being brought into, um, you know, back into our, into our communities, into our families. And yet at the same time, we don't want to make the same mistake of assuming that there's um, a professional lens necessary to have those skills. So I guess going back to the food example, the way that we reclaim the production of our own food is by having a gardener in every family, by helping people to be empowered and inspired and encouraged to go into their own backyard and plant a garden that, you know, of course there's skills to it, um, but they're not they're not hard skills to learn. Like at the end of the day, you just got to put your hands in the soil and you put a seed in and you water it. And, you know, you'll learn about pests along the way and how to grow better tomatoes along the way. But really it's by doing it um, that we get back in touch. And I think this, I would say very much the same thing. So um, I'm really attracted to what I would call sort of the social movement, which um, I would name community death caring. And I can talk about um, why I would call it that. 
um, as a social movement and then the sort of um, emergent profession of death doulas. Um, those are, I think to me, those are two separate things, two separate topics. Hmm. Yeah. And, you know, I think uh, that's part of the educational piece too, for a lot of people is just not, not seeing the difference in, in kind of what you're talking about. And, and I think part of that is because we are an outsource kind of society that we we've created now. And I, I love the analogy of, you know, the gardening and the food preparation, all this kind of stuff. But I guess where I struggle with that is, you know, we somewhere along the line broke this chain of tradition that maybe mm. would have had so much of this uh, death care in the family. When you say like having one person who, you know, is the gardener in the family, I look mm. at some of the traditions around the world and there's parts of the world where when someone, when someone passes away, um, the family's role is to clean the body, prepare the body, and then the whole village comes together to have like a funeral of some sort. And so the body actually stays in the house with the family, um, usually for at least a week while the community and distant family comes together in order for them to, you know, send this person off the way that they traditionally do so. And there is a whole normalization there that's just been, you know, um, passed down through demonstration. So the grandchild mm -hmm. is seeing, you know, the parents handle this for grandma and that gets passed down to the next generation gets passed down to the next generation. And now we've had a huge break in this passing down of knowledge here and you know we can we can get our seeds and we can go on youtube right now and i can find out okay for my zone four plants blah 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 blah. type in you know what do i need to do what kind of soil should i prepare for this how wet how dry how many hours of sun that's all on like the back of the you know the seed kit but we just don't have these kinds of resources we don't have anything in place for that for us getting our hands into this kind of death caring. So I guess that's yeah. the Well, I mean, I would, yeah, exactly. I mean, I would agree and disagree with you. I think, I think those kinds of kits are being developed and um, there are really amazing resources that will explain why and how you as a family member have the, the right and possibly even the obligation to care for your own dead at home. I think those kind of do-it-yourself manuals are let, are emerging. I've mm. watched many emerge myself, but I think maybe more profoundly to what you're speaking about is how, like I might use the word folkway, which isn't really a super familiar term to me, but it's one that that feels right about this, is that we've sort of, we've, we've lost this folkway. But then when we say we, um, we have to be really careful about the container that we're using there and the, you know, uh, who we're really speaking about because those folkways aren't completely lost. Like you're talking about a different time and place, different cultures. But even here within Canada, we have Indigenous cultures where those traditions are intact. Mm. And ironically, we're moving away from them and back toward them kind of at the same time. I mean, it's it's sort of bizarre. So I think that one thing we can do to reclaim death caring is to acknowledge and honor where it is still and already happening and to have um, those communities to, to seek their 
uh, leadership on these issues. I mean, I think that's a really huge piece that's kind of missing in what I see in the social movement is that it's often a certain segment of the population that are putting themselves forward as experts and as leaders. Um, and I myself, you know, might fall into that category tragically in some ways. Um, but there are real leaders in the community and they're not going to put their hand up and say, come and have me on your podcast. Um, but we could be looking to them and to their teachers, I think, with more um, sensitivity. On the other side, more in the sort of um, like consumerist um, end of things, I think that uh, when we look at at this act of reclaiming, um, I think then we can see how the emergent sort of profession, like you're saying, it brings the skills back to the people. So to, to me personally, um, I think that what we need are, are teachers. So that we do need people like the, the nurses that you mentioned, dealing with your family and helping your family. And, and I don't want to under, undermine the skills that those people are bringing into that situation. Um, I think that they are, hopefully they, they not only facilitated um, something with your family that was meaningful and beneficial, but I hopefully they also empowered and inspired members of your family to realize, oh my gosh, I've tapped into something now. Now I can do this myself. Now when the next death comes along, the next deathbed comes along, you know, you might feel more prepared. So the really, the, the crux of it to me is to how to give the skills back to community without also taking them away again by um, by creating professional standards that then disempower the average person like it's about it's about um helping the ordinary everyday lay people to know that that they they can they're the right people to do this work in their own families um is that making sense yeah 100 percent. and so at this point i'm, I'm wondering how uh how much uh, or how comfortable you feel even kind of talking about your own process through this because I know mm. that when we talked about it last time like you were pretty involved in kind of like the what would we call it the outsourcing for other people at one point yeah and then there yeah. was like a realization where a lot of this kind of like dawned on you and I guess yeah that's kind of part of my question is like at what stage did you kind of see it through that new lens of like oh okay so yes I've I've felt good about what I've been able to offer into this world yeah. for people, but maybe I'm actually keeping them away from learning it themselves. Like, where does that transition happen for you? Right. That's a really big question. And I'm, I'm glad that you've reached out and that you've asked it. And I hope that I'm, I'm brave enough to answer. Um, I think that to me, my story feels really unique. And then, you know, the more I step back from it, I realize that it's not. Uh, and I, I guess I'll kind of use the overarching theme of, of selling out in a way, you know, like you're a musician and you, you take on something because it's close to your heart and it's a passion. And then at a certain point, you, you start to see it from a more macro perspective and sometimes uh, something's lost. So I've really gone through something that, I, that I'm comfortable to share uh, with you right now about, um, but it has has been a, a journey for me. So um, to try to say it as, as simply as I can, I guess, um, for me, I, I, well, I grew up at my dad's uh, animal hospital where there was a lot of animals who were, who were sick and, and were dying. And that was probably sort of my venue uh, as an innocent child to be naive and to be with death. That's probably kind of what my my deep grounding was that sort of brought me in the first place to to sort of be open to explore 
And then from a formal academic perspective, I went back uh, to school to get a certificate in grief and bereavement. So it was really my lens of, of grief and bereavement that really sort of brought me to the work in the sense that um, I had a friend who um, had an experience of dying in a post-death care where the family and the community sort of stepped up to do that work. Mm -hmm. And I saw that and thought from, like, I just thought, oh my goodness, like, that's amazing. It was amazing to be part of. It was amazing to witness. And it was really, like I said at the beginning, the difference between um, like an obstetric birth and a, and a midwifery birth. Um, and so that was something that I just kind of had that moment of, well, there's something I have to follow. Like there's something deep inside me pulling me toward this that I, that I need to figure out and move closer to. Um, so what that looked like for me was, was taking kind of an academic lens and seeing how the grief theory that I had learned lined up so so completely and so truly with what I saw from a practical perspective that when people actually um, stepped into that closeness with death, not only like you're saying your family did at, at the bedside um, and also in providing hands-on post-death care, um, I would never go so far as to say that it's something people have to do or even should do. But on the other hand, I did see the practical benefit and I did see the therapeutic benefit. So it was seeing that therapeutic benefit to this very practical thing was what drew me to it. Mm. And so when that happened, um, I went and, and sort of got, got trained. If you, you know, uh, it's funny to think of it that way now, but at the time, you know, this was more than 10 years ago, maybe 15 years ago now, um, it was called death midwifery. I went to the United States and I was learning skills that had to do um, with what would then um, later become known as the home funeral movement. Um, so I was explaining before we started that that early on there was sort of this division between pre-death and post-death, mm -hmm. which seems completely ridiculous to me now. I, I look at it much more holistically. But when I talked about the Industrial Revolution and us becoming alienated from death caring, um, it was sort of like the pre-death care became medicalized, right, in the public health system. And the post-death care became privatized in the um, funeral industry. So coming at it, as I did more from a grief and bereavement background, I was automatically more sort of on that post-death kind of end of things. And so that's where I was drawn. I guess, I guess for a while there, I really just felt like I wanted to hang my shingle up and has a business, have a business as a, as a death midwife, where I would um, be paid to help people have their own home funerals. And gosh, I haven't said that in a really long time. That feels so... Um, such a vivid part of my past and actually such a long time ago when I think back to relating to how I felt and how hopeful I was and how I wanted a cool website and how I, mm -hmm. and then I went to hang my shingle and I found that um, the response in my community was like, what? <laughs> you, this is like new age witch, witchcraft. Like, well, I, we don't know what you're talking about. This is like, the, no, this is like a far out idea. And so that led to me becoming a little bit more, um, I don't know, I guess, instead of actually being hired to help families, I ended up being hired to do a lot of public speaking. Mm. And so I was writing articles. And so it ended up being kind of a voice in the community about an idea, as opposed to this really kind of practical business plan that I had 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 hoped for at that time. Mm. Um, so that went on and that went on. And like many people involved, um, I really, I guess, was on an ego journey. Um, and I'm not criticizing myself for this or criticizing other people. Like this is, you know, the journey that we all take through life. And when I started getting calls from CBC and 
um, you know, paid to present at events. Um, it really fed something in me, like a desire to be famous, I guess, you know, you could call it that. And became involved with all of these sort of foundational movements um, within the movement. And that really felt good in a really shallow way mm -hmm. for a while. And then it lost its luster, as tends to, tends to happen. And then I started to think, I, I just got caught up in this conundrum. And I'm really thankful to have the opportunity to speak about the conundrum, because the conundrum to me is that here's a social movement that arose because we collectively recognized that we'd become alienated from caring for our own dead and dying because it had been handed over to uh, the, the private industry, the funeral industry, and the, the public health of, of the medical sphere. So we've given it away and we've professionalized it and we need to get it back. And that was the whole kind of driving force. And in pursuing that and in seeing the benefit and the beauty of that and trying to create a collective and a social movement around that, um, I realized that, that eventually you kind of come to this place where there's a conundrum. It's like, are you not doing the exact same thing all over again? Right. And that just hit me so hard. It really, it, like it kept me up every night for years. I can say, and I've had this conversation with so many people who were involved in this movement from the beginning and everybody's had to make their peace with it. And I don't want to come down on how anyone else has decided to move forward with it. Um, but I think it's really hard because on one hand, how do we reclaim the skills in community unless someone's going to be there to teach us those skills? Mm -hmm. And so where I've landed with it. So I guess to continue the story um, from there, I started a school. I started an online school. Um, I hired 10 uh, of the who I thought were the leaders across Canada in all the different areas. And our students came and we had, I think, what I would consider like a really sort of magical kind of sharing together. A lot of um, a lot of really, really good teaching and learning took place. Um, but what I started to notice over going through the different classes of the school was in the first class, people were just so enthusiastic to like bring this knowledge back to the people to really like explore it as a folkway. And as each class went along, slowly students started to complain, well, you never told us how to start our business. Like you should be, this should be part of your curriculum. You should be telling us like how to start a website and telling us how to get insurance and telling us. And I thought, oh my goodness, that's not like, that's not where I want this to go. And so the, the, the short answer to your question that I just gave you a long answer to is that like when I was successful in doing what I thought I wanted to do, I realized that that actually wasn't success in what I more deeply wanted to achieve. And so I kind of got stuck and I, I literally just got actually stuck. I, people would call it compassion fatigued. Like I just couldn't go forward anymore. So I kept maintaining this huge Facebook group um, where we met, um, but I shut down the school and I even had offers to buy the school. And I thought, <laughs> How can I even do that? How can I, like, if I don't think it's right for this to exist in the world, how can I accept money for someone else to go and do it? And then I know some of my other um, beloved colleagues from early in the movement, you know, had to find their own answer to these questions. And they were kind of, some of them were taking the, the idea that, well, someone's like, death doulas are a thing and someone's going to teach them what they should be. So I want it to be me because you know, because I have what I think is important that they know. And I mean, some people are teaching amazing, great things and some people maybe not so great things, uh, but that's, I know how a lot of people have come to terms with it. So in an odd way, we now end up with this collective of people who 
um, can really only ma maintain integrity through teaching about death caring, if that makes sense. So it's kind of a movement that produces teachers. And that to me is as it should be, because those teachers are like the people that came to your family. Those teachers are the people that go out into their own families and into their own communities and serve one another until we can actually reclaim this folkway. But I think the, the mistake that, that gives me personally a lot of angst is that instead of being teachers, we become practitioners. Mm -hmm. And in becoming practitioners, then we're accepting um, money and credentials to do something. And we're saying that, okay, now I have the set of skills to do this as a professional, but you don't. And to me, that's the real problematic part. Um, and so now I'm almost done answering this question. Um, but for now, like, that's where you found me is that I've stepped back. And when you reached out to me, you know, nobody has for a really long time. It really jarred me because I wanted to say no to your request. Mm -hmm. um, and that's why. But, you know, here we are. And um, I don't know what, what it looks like to be involved now. To be involved now, it means, um, well, for one thing, instead of getting paid by people I don't know to, to help them sort of obtain some credentials that the, they can then go and start a business with. Instead, I'm trying to serve my own community. So I've taken a different job where I feel like I help seniors in the local community and I show up for my own family, uh, which is happening right now acutely um, in my partner's family. And I show up for them. And um, I don't know what the social movement looks like or should look like. Well, and you're touching on, you're touching on some like, very big topics that I know a lot of entrepreneurs have struggled with. I know I've struggled with in the past, like my background with uh, the suicide intervention work that I've done with the mindfulness teaching that I've done and everything, you know, when you talked about entering into that ego place and thinking like, oh yeah, well, you know, speaking on this kind of stuff. And cause I was at a, a similar place going to conferences and speaking on mindfulness and meditation. And there comes a point where, you know, our, our mind, our thinker self starts to justify where we're going. It justifies it in the way that you were kind of mentioning of like, well, okay, this is something that I'm passionate about. And shouldn't someone be able to, you know, support themselves, support their family by doing the things that they're passionate about. And it, it mm -hmm. ends up being such an internal struggle for, I know a lot of people, especially in some forms of like wellness, which I would kind of put this in the category of wellness. Like I look at I struggled myself with the idea of, well, you know, charging people to teach them, um, you know, mindfulness, meditation and all this where, you know, in a different time in a different culture, you know, monks weren't receiving monetary gifts, but there would be when you would go to sit and meditate with a monk, you would bring offerings of food and mm -hmm. there would be, you know, a monastery, a temple or something where there'd even be people, students who would cook the food which was always very simple fare, but they would cook the food in order to receive the teachings and all this. And yet on the same token, the monk was never in a position to ask for it. They would mm -hmm. never ask for it. They were always gifts, but it was a tradition of gifts and recognition. And they would fast if nobody brought food. And I remember having this conversation. Oh, that's fascinating. Yeah, right? Like, and I remember having this conversation with my wife at one point in time, like I would love to try going down that road and i did set up a lot of um exchanges like i had some local farmers that were actually 
paying me in food and microgreens and and stuff like that if you want to call it payment and i <laughs> loved this exchange of things but being in a society that requires uh if we want to be in it and not kind of living in a monastery living in a cave or something like that where we have bills to pay and all this kind of stuff it's how do you show up in your community yeah and 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 pay it forward in this fashion but still be able to pay your bills and that's such a tricky thing for so many people who do find a calling to want to help others right but have to so, have function yeah Oh, definitely. Thank you for, for sharing all of that. And um, th there's one kind of piece of that that I, I think it's interesting to deconstruct a little bit. Mm -hmm. And one is about this idea of, of exchange, because I find that in, in social media, when I start talking about this idea of <laughs> being, quote, opposed to capital P professionalization, mm -hmm. I get a lot of pushback that sounds a lot like some of the things that you just said about like, well, but I deserve to be paid for this. I like, I paid to take this education and now I need to be paid back. Like I've made an investment and I deserve to reap the benefit of that. And it's funny because to me, I think that that idea of exchange and especially that idea that the monks actually would go without if they didn't receive the exchange, that's, that's pretty fascinating. But this idea of the exchange, I think is in some ways integral and in some ways a little bit separate from what I'm talking about. Mm. And, and this is what I mean, I mean by that, is that I, I don't personally have any problem with people offering service and being reimbursed for the service that they offer. Mm -hmm. I think that that's, that that's a fair flow of energy. Um, I, I think there's a sticky area where, like your example with the monk, where people actually become reliant on getting paid back for what they're offering because if you think about it then that reliance actually means that instead of going out to passively offer their service they actually automatically become in need of people requiring their service and that's really where the heart of this this shift happens for me which is that you've actually, instead of just sort of being available to serve your community, you you actually are now putting pressure on your community to, to need you. And um, a great friend and teacher of mine uh, is involved with, with grief and bereavement. And he, he teaches that he has this uh, litmus test in his pocket. And when someone, when he asks, or when any person asks another person, do you need my help? Do you need help with this? And the person says, no, if feelings of anger or the, that person's like messing up, like they should know that they need me. They should know they need my expertise. They should know that I'm giving them this gift of help. Um, if, if those feelings of anger rise up, then it doesn't pass the litmus test in that you weren't actually making an authentic offer of assistance. You were actually doing something that's self-serving. So that's really interesting. But even further to kind of deconstruct that idea I'm not opposed to people calling themselves death doulas or making money, providing service, death doula services to other people. Where I think we've taken it more to like a problematic societal level is, and this is why I use the capital P when I talk about professionalization, is that we're actually actively developing a, a professional layer. We're developing an industry. We're developing a new death care industry. And what that means is that we're creating regulation and a professional body who are then deciding who can practice and who can't practice. Mm -hmm. And in making those standards and, and regulations available to the public, this is now going to circle back to like 
you know, our indigenous teachers. So now suddenly someone, let's just say someone um, decides, oh, I, I like I could have a skill set that matches this death doula thing. And they go and take training and they belong to association and they pay their dues and they get their insurance. And then they end up finding themselves going to an indigenous community and saying, ah, here I am here to serve you and you need to pay me to do this. Um, and the, the folks in the indigenous community that actually already had those traditions in place are now being disempowered. Mm -hmm. And I think that that, it seems like a far out thing, but I think that really happens. And I mean, that's where, when I was saying before, my story feels unique to me, but I think it, it isn't really unique. I think this is sort of, you know, the machine of, of capitalism. Mm -hmm. Um, and that's the part that, that worries me. So I wish that when I say I, I wish there's a death duel in every family, like that's really what I mean is I wish that all of this teaching and learning could go on, but that the end result wouldn't be a profession of death doulas, that the end result would be that that every family had a death doula. And I know back in the day, a lot of my colleagues, you know, wrestling with this kind of idea about 10 years ago, and you'll find it on the internet if you look up um, anything to do with this movement is like, we want to work ourselves out of a job. We want to, we want to, teach this folk way so that we're not needed anymore and to me that's a calling that resonates for me that's that's something I can identify with but unfortunately it's not what I see happening which is you know the source of my angst well and, and again like I can really resonate from being a, a mindfulness and meditation teacher is when we go on retreat like before the pandemic we would take people to uh, Costa Rica and um, even just around in Canada and go on these intensive retreats and people would always talk about how much they got out of going on the retreats and, you know, the environments and all this kind of stuff. And one of the things that was really important to get across for me, at least, was, yeah, but you don't need the retreat. It's mm. a great, it can be a great tool and it can help for us to feel separation from our stressors and all that kind of stuff for us to be able to gain some perspective on them, be able to maybe shift our narrative on them and those kinds of things. But ultimately, the state of mind that you created you know, we can create that anywhere we are. We don't need mm -hmm. to be, you know, we're, we're in a luxury society where we can fly to Costa Rica and, you know, leave everything behind for a period of time and just be in the sun and all this kind of stuff. But peoples around the world have found like some of the places that my wife and I lived and traveled through India and Nepal, you know, some of the happiest people that I ever experienced had the least amount of possessions and, and what we would consider luxuries and all that. And I remember mm -hmm. that being a really big eye opener as far as like what we actually need. Like no one, everyone, as far as I'm concerned with mindfulness, everyone has all of the skills that they need. Everyone knows yeah. all of this stuff. This is all that the teaching is, is how to listen to yourself and basically kind of go and put yourself in a state where you're undoing some of the conditioning all the teachings, all the how to be present, you know, all that is there. But how do we counteract, you know, the uh, the attention engineers that are, you know, trained to get us to click our phone so many times per second and all of this kind of stuff. And, you know, I, I when I when I reached out to you is really interesting. I didn't know we were going to be going into as much like deep philosophical stuff for those that are listening. I've had a huge smile on my face the whole time Cassandra was talking because these are some of the things we're talking about are akin to like Zen Buddhist koans, which are kind of almost like Zen riddles where there's no real answer to it. All we can do is just sit and contemplate these things. Like one of the ones that comes up a lot is with selfless service. What is a true selfless service? Because if anything actually leaves you even feeling 
good about what you've done? Is it really selfless? Because you're rewarding yourself by some sort of narrative, like, I'm a good person, I just did this. Mm -hmm. And it's something that um, in, in Buddhism, in different uh, philosophical um, settings like that, people have kind of struggled with, because one of the ways that they talk about reaching enlightenment, if we want to throw out that big word, is through what would be pure selfless service, which kind of feels like a paradox because it's a question of does it even exist? And what we're talking about here is this idea of perpetuating industry by trying to pull away from industry. I remember reading a book, uh, I think it was Russell Brand talked about revolution. And one mm -hmm. of the things that he put out there was those that actually, those that would kind of start a revolution, if we really wanted to build this utopian society, the ones that would start the revolution would actually end up needing to be like dispatched or killed because mm -hmm. the same traits that have someone start a revolution are the same traits that would have someone start everything that the revolution would have been revolutionizing against. And it's again, <laughs> well, really like you just get into some really deep, uh, <laughs> really deep trains of thought there. But I love no kidding. I didn't realize I could get so uh, so pigeonholed. But before we move too far past it, I really want to go back to something you said there, because likewise, I was smiling through everything that you just said. And I don't know if it was uh, on air or maybe before we were talking about. So how would you describe like the practical skills that someone needs to show up for this work? Mm. And my answer to that question would be exactly how you just answered the question of how when someone asks, for, asks you as a teacher, how do I be mindful? Mm -hmm. And you were just so eloquent in the way that you just described like, yes, they're skills, they're real skills, but they're, they're skills we already have. Mm -hmm. And it's about showing up and being present. And everything that you described was death dueling. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think it's the, I don't know what maybe started it, but something in our society has created such um, imposter syndrome because we're in a society where we believe and we've been taught that unless we have a certificate in something we're not we're not qualified and i think yeah. you know i i've again been down the same road with the work that i do and had conversations with people who have been perpetual students and have a very impressive list of certificates and i understand in a community where you don't necessarily have the time to vet someone to the extent that maybe that you'd want to or it's not always you know so many degrees of separation or a friend of a friend that having a governing body to say yes this person has some skills and we've made sure on your behalf that they have skills that can help you and do more good than damage and i can understand where certifications and those kinds of things come from from that but one of the questions okay. that i often ask people is who certified the first certified person that person wouldn't have had a certificate that would person would have just had life skills and mm -hmm. i've done a lot of work to acquire these life skills i'm going to teach individuals and back in the day it would have just been you would have just talked about who your teachers were and i would have mm -hmm. said well yeah so i i studied under um, or i apprenticed or i observed uh cassandra doing her work i put oh cassandra okay but we grew and grew and grew and grew and grew in population size and we live such a fast-paced life now that that way of of earning your knowledge just kind of seems like how does it keep up with the life for sure I, I get it and i get that it's part of um 
like for me, that's kind of the difference between using the word culture and using the word society. I get it that it's part of our society to have those those measures in place and that it's in the same way that we if we're pulled over for speeding by a police officer we we don't just deal with that as another individual friend we accept the fact that they're that they have a title and that we're going to respect the title so i get the necessity of that and also when it comes to something like um meditation or enlightenment or for me um death caring it's a it's a strange skill to try to commodify in the first place mm-hmm yeah. And I love the fact that this is a podcast that doesn't have an answer to it. I love that there's not going to be a nice, neat little bow at the end of this episode that says, OK, well, this is the solution. Congratulations, Cassandra. We've we figured this one out. The two of us putting our heads together, <laughs> um, because I also, you know, when this whole idea of higher potential living is trying to empower people to come up with their own opinions on different topics and mm-hmm. doing so by just giving different perspectives and bringing different Um, variables to the equation and everything because you know I was even thinking when you were talking about grief like so grief training that's something that is out there it's been out there for for quite some time and yet grief shows up so differently in the world for so many different people it itself is a very difficult thing to kind of say okay here's your certificate you're now prepared for this because it's so unique in how it shows up in every individual, how it shows up in the world. There's not like a certain time frame of like, okay, well, you only grieve for a year after, you know, losing someone. And then I give you a little gold star and you're good now. You're not going to grieve anymore or anything like this. Like, especially when we get into elements of this world and elements of being human that are not so cut and dry. Like, okay, I fixed the carburetor on your car. It's good to go. Let me give you this emission sticker or whatever. Um, Mm -hmm. Dealing with some pretty fluid topics here. And it does get trickier to to quantify a lot of that kind of stuff. So I'm imagining that, that both of us would agree that the answer to the underlying question is just to show up. Yeah. Um, And that would sort of be what I would offer as practical advice for folks in their life when it comes to death caring, um, which is to acknowledge the alienation, to, to understand the grief that we might be experiencing due to the alienation, to forgive ourselves for not knowing what to do or what to say when Mm -hmm. we're at the deathbed of someone we love or a friend of ours has had a miscarriage or, Mm -hmm someone's died by suicide and we feel without skills. I think that the, my hope for all of us would be to, to be gentle with ourselves and to forgive ourselves in those moments and to, and to be, to find the courage to just, to keep showing up. And um, so, I mean, to reach out to that friend uh, or to, have the difficult conversation maybe with your parents about what their what their wishes might be um, if they were in a hospital and with an advanced disease and maybe couldn't talk or communicate effectively anymore like what would they want what would that look like um yeah I mean as I mentioned my extended family is going through this right now and it's just not it's a process. It's not something you can push. It's not something like you say, oh, good, we've like figured that out, put the stamp on it and move on. It's it's something that that you need to kind of go through collectively. But the only way to go through it is 
to actually go through it. <laughs> You can't just say you went through it or, or go through it in an abstract way. And so everybody, you know, um, gathers and experiences. So people come to terms with, okay, this person we love is really sick, but we're not yet using the word dead. We're not yet talking about end of life. And so one example of this in the real world would be where sort of the, the medical system, um, avoids avoids that transition into sort of end of lifetime so you're going to be treated in acute care until quite a late stage toward death before there's going to be any triggers within the medical system itself that's going to say hey maybe it's time to gather the family like that's going to happen a few days before death Mm. um but i think if we hadn't become alienated, if this folkway is uh, reclaimed, then I think more what showing up would look like is that earlier on in that pathway, people are going to talk to the doctor and say, well, what, like, what if, what, what if this treatment doesn't work? What's that going to look like? What are our options? What are some choices that we have? What are, so I think that's the kind of really kind of practical fallout of the, the philosophical things that we're talking about. Mm -hmm. And the same thing post-death, you know, like um, it's just all of us giving ourselves permission. I mean, I think we could say that the death care industry, um, by that I mean the funeral industry, is sort of predicated upon this, um, I call it like a conspiracy to protect one another. That if we, if we don't, if we avoid things, put it under the rug, don't talk about it, hand it over to professionals, find all these ways of continuing the alienation that will somehow get to avoid grief or get to even avoid the death. And of course, that's like, never the answer. That's never that's never the solution. And so, um, you know, just reminding people that, that they have not only the innate ability and wisdom and skills to show up in their life and in their community, but that they're also needed to do so. We need each other to do this. Um, so yeah, I'm flipping back and forth between the abstract and the practical quite radically. Exactly. I'm aware and like one of the things yeah. that we talked about is the the community sense too. Like that's something that always comes up for me when we talk about the difference of how maybe some indigenous cultures are are handling these kinds of things. And one of the books that were really impactful for me just of in understanding human behavior was the book Sapiens. And it was a great book, uh, anthropological study of talking about how we behaved when we were smaller bands of people, nomadic bands of people who understood what it meant to be intimate as a community, which meant there was no conversations that were off the table because we all knew each other so well. And I think that's what we see more in, you know, these these smaller communities, whereas we're kind of living in a smile facing society at this point in time where it's like, you know, we use social media and all this kind of stuff. I'm going to post pictures of the best days of my life when I'm smiling, you know, when I'm looking extra skinny today, I'm going to snap a picture and I'm going to put it online and all this kind of stuff. And what we do is we hide, we bury the days that we feel sad, the days where Mm. we feel, you know, depressed about certain things, or, you know, on this podcast, I've had my wife on as a guest several times where we've talked about, you know, near divorce conversations where we've had, Mm -hmm. you know, a lot of these, these real life situations come up that most people come across at some point in their relationships, at some points in their lives that we're just not talking about. And I feel like there is this, you know, kind of like what you said with the, the meat, we want it to just be in the grocery store, 
packaged neatly clean no fur oh. i don't want to see eyeballs i don't want to see any of this kind of stuff just show me something and i don't want to call it flesh i want to call it mm -hmm. steak or something like this and yeah. that's uh when you say like show up i think it's also showing up for each other in the fact that we can be real this way we can have conversations about you know when we even have questions have conversations when we don't know something and uh you know, for, for my grandparents, that's the, the closest I could talk about as far as going through these experiences myself. The difference between my grandfather passing away, which was kind of unexpected. Um, he just had some medications he was on. They interacted improperly. He had a big uh, bleed out in his brain and he just collapsed. He was at an eye doctor appointment and he just collapsed. Mm -hmm. And so he was rushed to the hospital. We all got the phone call. We went down there. I remember the doctor brought us into a little room in the hospital, which I didn't even know these little meeting rooms existed, went to mm -hmm. this little room and the doctor started asking my grandmother. And at the time he was in his, uh, oh, I should know this, late 70s, early 80s, and um, asked the question, okay, so if we try some procedures, he, there's a good chance that he will be non-functioning, that he'll be alive, mm -hmm. but he won't be the same person that you would have recognized is this the kind of thing that he would have wanted and they never had any conversations that looked anything like that because those yeah. were scary conversations right like there our idea of mortality and this is something that is talked about a lot in a lot of the mindfulness philosophies and everything that recognizing that we get upset we get angry when we get sick when you know we injure a limb when our knees start hurting or all this kind of stuff but those again those are the those are the things that are more likely to happen in this world. The, when we are standing, breathing and healthy, that's a miracle in and of itself. There's so much that needs to be working properly for that to happen that, you know, we should be celebrating every day when we wake up and take a breath and be like, oh man, yeah, good for you, body. Good for me for like getting up today. This is fantastic. Rather than like, oh my goodness, like, you know, life, how can this happen to me? How can I be limping? This whole old age thing. So to have these conversations about, you know, mortality and all this. So that was a, a big eye opener for me. Again, going back to the story with my grandfather, like, okay, these are some conversations that like I was in my late 20s at the time. And I started having those conversations with my wife right away as soon as mm -hmm. I got back from the hospital. Yeah, and we did the the hospice care with my grandmother conversations I didn't even know to have questions like, okay, well, at this point in time, because we know that she's terminal, if she gets an infection, are we going to treat it? If she needs to be resuscitated, if she goes unconscious, are we going to resuscitate her? Like all these things I was like, oh my goodness, like I didn't even know that these, they're things that we just, again, outsource and think someone else has the answers to these questions. I don't need to think about them. But when all of a sudden it's personal and it comes into like your life or into your immediate family's life, it's like, oh no, I actually have to have an answer for something like this. Yeah. Or, you know, at least again, try to show up. Oh, you're so right, Jason. I mean, that's happening in my world, like today, like actually today that's happening in my family. And the fact that I had enough expertise that you would consider having me on this podcast mm. <laughs> does not shield me right. from that. And, you know, in fact, in some ways, you know, makes me more vulnerable to all of it um, mm. too, which is, which is also uh, precious. 
when but I mean, you're right. I think that, sorry, go on. I was going to say, well, it's again, like we talked about with the grief is it shows up differently every time. It's like people, you know, you get uh, parenting experts out there. I, I've heard the analogy that um, some children are dandelions and some children are orchids and a, a dandelion child doesn't matter what style of parenting you use, doesn't matter, you know, what kind of environment they grew up in, they're going to blossom, they're going to do well. Then there's the orchid kids that no matter what you seem to do, if you try to do everything 100% perfectly, they're still going to struggle. And it just mm -hmm. goes to show how unique every situation is. And when we get to, you know, this whole aspect of end of life, you know, to try to create a beautiful little formula that we can hand out to people when mm. you could be dealing with family politics, you could be dealing with resentments that have built up over the course of an entire lifetime, things that went unspoken or questions yet answered, like all this kind of stuff. All of a sudden now it's like, oh my goodness, there's no more avoiding these things. There's no more putting off these conversations that we never had. How do I deal with all of this when now I'm getting flooded? So I'm trying to be of service. And yet I'm also potentially emotionally compromised to the situation as well. I just don't think that there is a perfect formula for something like that. And I'm no expert in this at, at, at by any mm -hmm. means. No, well, I mean, I think you are to the extent that we all are and we all aren't, which mm -hmm. is kind of the point. Mm -hmm. um, I try to operate with an assumption that um, people will find the death that's right for them. Mm -hmm. um, that's been something, a mantra that's kind of comforted me over the years because my impression of what a good death for another person is, is uh, kind of self-serving and arbitrary, really, mm -hmm. in a way. I mean, I think it really helps to put people at the center of their own experience in that way. Um, yeah. yeah, I mean, you're saying so much there. We could go <laughs> off in a number of directions. I know. <laughs> You've got my mind going so many different ways, but you, you bring up a good point. Someone once said to me too, um, when considering what the end of life looks like, are you building the picture that suits you or are you building the picture that suits the individual who's dying? And I think that's also a really interesting thing to contemplate. Like I knew someone totally. who- and who And whose picture should it be? Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, there's a big question too. I think if we look at- um, you know, Western society, I think we put a really high priority on um, autonomy, on personal autonomy. Mm. And I think the way that that kind of interplays with, with community is that um, when I say that, that I, I try to operate with a belief that people will find the death that's right for them, I, I don't say that without context. I don't mean that in the sense that that person deserves exactly what they wanted to have. Um, I don't mean it in that way. I mean that we can't separate ourselves from our community. I love the phrase having a community to die into because no matter what, um, no matter what advanced directives are in place, uh, those that are around us are fundamentally going to make decisions for us when we cease to be. Mm -hmm. And a whole other interesting branch of this topic, I think, is how during death one moves from a subjective to an objective to an objective stance and um, how we then gather around that as a people and as a community is is really fascinating and probably like a whole other topic for a whole other podcast mm -hmm. but um in this context i'm thinking about 
uh, that it's not just about putting the things in place so that the individual gets what the individual wants and what the individual is entitled to. It's about, um, it's about dissolving into one another. Like it's a very community dying. I think is such a community oriented thing. Mm. And I think that someone's immediate family or loved ones, if they know that a person wanted their body to be cremated, for example, that then the act of taking that person's body to be cremated, even if you didn't agree with it yourself, just knowing that they wanted that and that you were fulfilling a wish for them um, would be satisfying. And also at the same time, if that's not possible for some reason, because either enough family members are so opposed to it that it just, it overwhelms what the desire of the individual would have been. Or if cremation for some reason, you know, the retort broke and it's just not available, that people are going to problem solve and move through that. So what I mean is that what's fascinating about dying is that the individual like literally ceases to exist in the process like that. That's actually what's happening. And so we are are figuratively and literally like dissolving into others, dissolving into the environment, into the earth, into the other people, into community. Um, and so this kind of takes me back to what you were saying earlier about the, um, you mentioned a book called Sapiens and your podcast with your wife, which makes me want to listen to your podcast. I'm sorry that I haven't yet, but I, I will. Um, so brave of you to have those personal uh, conversations openly. And, um, uh, and then I lost my train of thought. I got into congratulating. Okay, I have, I have a whole station of trains here in my mind. Uh, okay. <laughs> But yeah, you know, you you touch even on the um, talking about like ceasing to exist. And, you know, there's been conversations around who is the funeral for? There's the pre right. and the post that you kind of alluded to. And so right. we talk about the pre, can we form, you know, the pre even uh, pre death? Is that more for the community? Is it more for the individual? And then when we shift into the post, is that more for the community? Is that more for the individual? Like these are big questions. And a lot yeah. of times we get things like, um, religious beliefs and societal beliefs and all this, depending on what culture you come from, that can also uh, complicate and complement, depending on what's what's going on there, the, the idea. Like uh, my wife and I spent time um, with some of the Indigenous tribes in uh, Australia and Indigenous peoples there. And they, and specifically Northern Ar Arnhem Land area where uh, we spent some time, they believe that once someone passes on and goes to the spirit plane, that we do not think about them anymore. We do not talk about them anymore. And the idea is that every time we say their name, any time that we would um, invoke thought of them, even we're pulling them back from the other side. And the other side is peace. It's bliss. It's beautiful. Why would we want to do that? So even any photographs, anything like that, all of that is completely destroyed at point of death mm. and we essentially just kind of would imagine they never existed on this plane to let them fully be in whatever the other existence would look like and there's all these ceremonies and and um death rites that happen in that process and then we have other parts of the world that believe that you're not fully dead until nobody utters your name anymore so then it goes the opposite way. It's like, well, as long yeah. as we keep sharing stories, as long as we keep laughing and smiling and remembering you, then you're actually still here. You're still with us. And um, when you talk about like what happens when you get, you know, communities and families even that have now different beliefs as what 
should happen in a funeral situation or post-death and all that kind of stuff with belongings, possessions and all this kind of stuff. This is where, you know, we've seen these kinds of situations get very complicated. And again, you know, who is that post, post-death post um, realm for? The one that's deceased for the people that are still here. It's It gets very tricky to navigate all totally. of Totally. Well, you're right. And the belief systems are... are are all over the place. And I think that, um, I guess where I, and it, it, it is interesting with time as well, right? Like I think it, I mean, I tend to take kind of a quantitative perspective on that, but that's just my own personal belief system. Mm. Um, but from a community death caring perspective, I think where I would go with that would have to do with the meaning making that arises out of doing that problem solving together as a community, mm. um, dealing with those different beliefs and values and having to ultimately find a solution because this person's died and their body is going to decay. And yeah. so we can't not decide. Right. Um, and that working together, I think that a lot of people, this is kind of, I guess, kind of backing up a little bit now, but um, I think a lot of people sort of want a formula as to how to do something right, like what is the the right way to, to perform death care or whatever, or we need to go and take this class, we need to have professionals because we don't want, we don't want all of these imagined crises to take place, where um, I mentioned earlier about kind of arriving into this sphere for myself through a, a lens of grief and bereavement. Mm-hmm. And part of the real sort of um, therapeutic value that I could see in community death caring was that as families and communities work together to solve these problems that's where meaning was made and that's where a lot of um, grief was showing up and being processed being felt and so an example that I often used to give was that you know like again I would never say that someone needs to or should put their hands on the the body of their loved one who's died Um, and yet at the same time in the times when that that sort of thing has happened, it's become a, um, a, an opportunity for grief. It's become an opportunity to have a visceral experience and a, um, a communal experience. And so I guess that's kind of where I would take that is that there are so many um, different ideas, but the fact that we have to work through them together is for me what the social movement of, of community death caring is, is all about. Um, yeah, and I think, you know, going full circle to that, having all of these unique cultural, spiritual, and all this kind of beliefs, I think also solidifies where we started with this conversation of, of putting it back in the hands of the family, because as an outside individual coming into a dynamic, not knowing the backstory, not knowing where everyone's at, not knowing the dynamics between, you know, Aunt Susie and whatever, all this kind of stuff, but that's where when we kind of put ourselves in the situations as individuals who are showing up within our own families, uh, it can be, I believe, um, so much more of the the healing process too. that that grief, that um, that bereavement process of showing up and trying things and having those conversations. And and uh, yeah, I, I think this has been like I, we have a, a little bit of time uh, left and I'm just reflecting on mm-hmm going full circle with everything. Well, for before you do, for sure, uh, I would say that I think actually that's where um, death doulas as an emergent profession actually does shine. To be honest, I think that people are receiving 
really good training in that, really good training in being self-reflective and being self-aware and knowing how to show up and, and journey with a family mm. without taking over, without putting too much ego in. I'm imagining these are the skills that the nurse that in your family, I'm imagining those are the skills that she brought to the bedside that, totally. that you glean so much value from. And in that way, I would be very complimentary of the trainings and the programs that are out there for death doulas. I think that a lot of people come away um, really having gained a lot of skill in that area. So I would be quite complimentary about, about the fact that instead of focusing on learning what medications control pain or whatever, I think that the, the death doula um, profession has done a good job at bringing the focus to, to what you just described. So, uh, yeah. Yeah. And I think that's great. And I think it's important to recognize that for most of the stuff, like yourself getting into the work that you've done, and even, you know, I'll speak for myself getting to the work that I've done, like everyone goes into this kind of work, right? Maybe I, I shouldn't say everyone, but everyone that I've come in contact with goes into this work kind of from a, a situation that we've talked about. They've experienced something. They've felt mm -hmm. a void in their own knowledge base or something, and they feel driven. They feel passion about yeah. trying to help people. And, you know, I guess where things can potentially end up as, as an industry and as a society, there's byproducts to just the society we live in and how um, monetary driven everything is. But at the root of so much of this, there is love, there is compassion, there is all of that that goes with it. And I think you're right, like we focused a lot in this podcast episode of almost like stretching the boundaries and, and uh, tapping into um, how things could be. And, you know, we didn't, I, I think we did a pretty good job of not saying should be. But at the root of so much of this work, I think it is important to recognize that for anyone who's listening to this, that have had similar experiences with um, individuals like the nurse that came into my household and all that kind of stuff. Like, yeah, there are true gifts to a family going through tough times. And they definitely can, can um, be amazing facilitators for the processing um, and all that kind of stuff that comes with that. And I think, you know, to kind of recap and correct me if, if where I've gone with this and taken away from this a little bit different with yours is we're kind of in the same way, not trying to diminish that, just in the same way that, you know, some people maybe don't have the land to grow their own food or whatever, but at the mm -hmm. same time, having some of those basic ideas or understanding of where your food comes from. I've, I've worked at children's camps where we've taken kids to a farm and they'll look at an apple tree and say, mm -hmm. you know, are these the similar apples that grow in the supermarket? And mm -hmm. just bringing some awareness to like the process that goes on here and some education maybe that's handed down through even just some of the ways that we talk about uh, things as well. But um, yeah, definitely, definitely uh, some thought provoking um, conversation points through here. And yeah, you're right. I think what you're saying there about the motivation that brings people to the movement is, is almost always from a really good place. Mm -hmm. And I think that's why I, had such inner turmoil and conflict when I when I encountered those kind of negative aspects in in my understanding of sort of where the social movement was going it wasn't as easy as just saying well forget that then and walking away I think what like what's kept me attached is understanding like reflecting back on on how I got involved and I there yeah there wasn't any malicious intent of course um and knowing that everybody's going to go through this journey as well. So I do have a lot of compassion for, for everyone on that journey, uh, in addition to, to what we're, you know, what we're going for, what we're trying to support. Um, 
I guess in wrapping up, I would think a little bit about, you know, some of the words that we talked about at the beginning and that we've been using throughout. And um, I, I noticed for myself that I, I like to speak more as a, from a sociological perspective, I like to think more of the, the social movement because I think it's just that it's not stagnant. It's a movement. So it's not about arriving at a destination. It's about sort of what direction are you headed? Mm-hmm. And I don't, yeah. And so that, that's important. And also that, um, also that when I, when I think of it in the sort of um, capitalist or that realm, uh, the professional realm is one kind of set of things. And in the other realm, when I look at the social movement, I think of how um, I resisted sort of naming myself or giving myself a title. And the words community death caring came actually from a student um, at our school who uh, gave me permission to share the story and to share uh, the name and the word with the world, which has, has caught on to a certain extent. But it was because, so I was actually interviewing her. She, she was, her background was in nursing and she lived in a multicultural and multi-generational household. And she was describing, I was asking her, why are you interested in the program? And she said, oh, well, when we were death caring for my nan. And I was like, what What did you just say? And she said, oh, sorry, I just made up that word. And I said, no, like, tell me about why. Why did you make it up? What's the meaning there for you? And she said, well, death caring, you know, I, I, don't, I don't know what else to call it. Like my nan was there and all these cultural beliefs and everything were coming together, but we were, we were doing something to care for her in death and it was death caring. And I love that word because it is not easy to turn into a title. It's not easy to commodify. Um, So community death caring, that phrase arose for me out of that conversation, which is kind of like my little rebellious attempt to prevent it from, from being capitalized in those, in those ways. Um, so I just wanted to share that history of, of that word because it's it's really close uh, to me. Yeah, and I love it. And I love even the, you know, the death caring word has its power to it too. And the community, um, you know, we've, we've talked about that a lot throughout this podcast yeah. as well. And that means um, I, for me, a lot of like connection and coming together and everything that that represents. Um, I think one other kind of recap point that I think came up, but we kind of went over it pretty quickly is the area of like not beating yourself up in these kinds of situations like you know I've done work Mm -hmm. with parents that have even said like oh you know if I could go back the way that I could have parented differently and like all this kind of stuff and again with every situation with every individual being so unique we can rack our brain constantly about what we could have done differently and how we could have shown up differently and all of this kind of stuff but just showing up like you said at one point just showing up is so brave so courageous and such a gift in and of itself i've um so going into like the world of of speaking of grief and and death with with children's been really interesting and and lately in uh, my circles and my community has been something that's come up a lot is how do we talk about this kind of stuff with children and Mm -hmm. i remember having one of my students bringing their four-year-old uh to me at one point in time because she said that she wanted to die and her mother totally got terrified when she heard her four-year-old say, I want to die. And mm-hmm. so we, we, we kind of talked about it. And uh, it came from a place where when they were describing death to their four-year-old child, they said, well, grandma is now in a better place and she's with all of her friends and she gets to eat like all the ice cream that she wants and all this kind of stuff. So to a four-year-old, it's like, man, this sounds incredible. I want to die. 
like all my friends are there and it's a better place like why wouldn't i want to die if this is the image that's depicted in my mind now of what what death is and then when that kind of came to light the mother was beating herself up quite a bit about like oh man like you know I, i've now planted the seed in my child's head that dying and death is like better than this living world and you know have i screwed mm -hmm. up for life and all this kind of stuff and you know no matter what we do no matter what we say there's always room for continuing the journey and growing together and learning together and and all of that and i don't think that there's nothing that even if damage was done if we want to use the word damage which i think you know, <laughs> is very subjective because we're in continuous growth but uh nothing is nothing is final as far as that goes that we can we're, we're so plastic we're so resilient as as individuals as a culture another one that was really interesting that came up uh, some friends of mine recently again had um um well it was a friend of mine's father ended up doing uh, assisted death and when they were describing it to their four-year-old they actually sought out a professional which you know again there's a place when we do feel ill-equipped or maybe we don't know how to broach these conversations, there are some resources, some people there to give us some tools. But one of the things that the professional said is, especially right now during a pandemic, resist using the phrase or the terminology of he got sick and he is no longer going to be with us. And I remember that just like that subtlety, like, oh, okay, yeah. So using a term like that, he got sick and now he's going to die and he's going to stop breathing and all this kind of stuff. That if we say that in a world where we can get sick so many different ways by getting a cold, by getting this, when you're dealing with young minds that may not understand the difference of severity of sicknesses and all this kind of stuff. And again, sometimes that puts people in a state of like even more fear of, I'm going to say the wrong word at some point in time. I'm going to do the wrong mm -hmm. thing. I'm going to screw my children up or something that, um, again, this is a constant movement that we can move through things together. And as long as we keep dialogue open, we keep communicating, even if we use those terminologies, there's room to explain more. There's room to go into that deeper. There's room to learn from that together and, and so on and so forth. So to show up and to, you know, just be willing to adapt and, and kind of move with things, I think is a, a big takeaway that I got from the conversations that we've had um, here as well. I don't know if you have any yeah. thoughts about that stuff. Well, I mean, I have so many thoughts. This is like <laughs> 20 podcasts in one now. Like, mm -hmm. um, but I think, you know, to the point that um the sex talk is not a one-time thing right. <laughs> with teenagers. <Exactly>. Totally. <laughs> and I think that's the point you're making is that um, you know, it, it okay, we are if it's true. If, if we could assume that it's true that that as a society we have become alienated from death which was kind of our starting point today if we if we accept that as a as a true statement then we can look at what has resulted from that and what has resulted from that was so when did the industrial revolution happen and how did did parents teach their children differently about death in the 50s 60s 70s 80s 90s you know post 2000 um how has that changed over time and when and so when you take this little sliver of time that we're in right now we have parents who grew up in a time where they were alienated from death now teaching their children about death being alienated already themselves so yeah. the same way as we started out talking about the food once that alienation happens it, it kind of takes a lot of work to get back to it again and i think like your point um the way to get back to it is just to just to keep showing up just to keep showing up uh, you know again and again and again um i guess one other way of sort of elucidating what i think you're getting at is um 
I'll go to my my friend again, uh, another grief um, expert. I, I explained his thing with the litmus test about offering help. And another another concept that he teaches has to do with um, risking closeness. And if you look online about death and saying the right thing and saying the wrong thing, it focuses so much like on the the rules of like there's one right way to do this, and if you don't, you're really messing up, and you're gonna you know like you're saying you're gonna mess your kid up for life. Whereas um, my friend would teach that the opposite approach is to risk closeness. The opposite approach is to, is to be real and be authentic in yourself. And if you show up to a child and share what you, what you authentically believe over time, again, it's not just one conversation over time, they're going to be equipped to sort through that. And that's not just about children. I mean, there's all kinds of stuff we could get into about developmental stages and how we learn, um, how we, come to have a mature understanding of death and dying. We don't have time for that. But I think, mm-hmm. you know, to your point, when we talk about keep keeping showing up, when we talk about the authentic, authenticity of the human experience, when we talk about working together to co-create meaning, yeah, this is all the language I love about, about grief and bereavement. And it, it's so translatable to the very practical aspect of, of reclaiming the care of our, of our dying and our dead in, in our culture. Mm-hmm. I, I could keep going, but I, we got to stop for the sake of this. But um, when we at one point, we talked about resources when I said, you know, on the back of the seed kit, that yeah. uh, we don't have this and you said that there are some other things out there. What are some things that like keywords? What are some things we can search? What are some directions we can go? Is there any recommendations you have there for us empowering ourselves in these ways? Oh, well, gosh, I mean, um, Google. If I think Googling community death caring would be a, a worthwhile um, exploration, a uh, rabbit hole that would probably anyone who's listened long enough to this podcast to get to this point um, would probably enjoy enjoy having a look around um, sort of from a practical aspect. If you look at um, again, now I'm going back to the the division between the pre-death and the post-death, but um, in terms of post-death care, the National Home Funeral Alliance is a, an organization in the United States that has a wealth of information online and a wealth of really practical information. If you look at sort of your DIY home funeral, yeah. um, there actually is just really good advice that could be really practical and ground a family who were maybe thinking like, I've heard that we could do this ourselves. Could we really do it ourselves and are just needing enough kind of information to equip themselves with to take those next little steps. I think that would be a good thing. If I look at the sort of, um, I guess, pre-death end of things in terms of resources, some of the key words um, would be end of life, would be palliative care. Um, And then I think looking at kind of where the medical community intersects with some of the more philosophical community. Mm. Um, I think that's where a lot of, and, and when I sort of referred to my extended family now, um, we're, we're working together to draw on all those resources is how do we um, work with the hospital? How do we use the hospital's own language to initiate conversations um, about palliative care, about hospice? How do we um, help our care providers to understand who we are and where we're coming from? Um, so I think both those two sides of things, but but death caring and community death caring and death midwifery and um, community death care Canada is a Canadian organization um, that I was involved with from the beginning. 
um, that's really still flourishing. And then, of course, um, the death doula will take you down a rabbit hole to uh, like a, a lot of amazing, amazing resources. So I think Google's really going to be anybody's friend if they want to explore more about this topic. <laughs> Perfect. Cassandra, thank you so much. I know, like you said, there was uh, some question in your mind as to whether or not you wanted to hop on this podcast with me and kind of dive into these things. I personally am very uh, happy that you did. I love the conversation. I love the directions that it went to. Thank you so much for being here today. And uh, yeah, I personally just look forward to keeping in touch with you, see what's uh, going on and what's coming up in the future. Absolutely. It was a pleasure. Thank you so much, Jason. And thank you for your um, good listening. <laughs> My pleasure. Take care. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Higher Potential Living Podcast. If you would like to learn more about higher potential living and the services we offer, please visit www.higherpotentialliving.com. We offer different online courses, in-person courses, mindfulness and meditation retreats, and we have a variety of different coaches that are there to help you with anything that you might be going through. So please check us out. You can also help support the work we do by subscribing to this podcast anywhere you're listening. And of course, sharing it and telling your friends all about it. Thank you so much and have a great day.